Welcome back to the Remedial Film Class Podcast. I'm your host, Dan. And I'm Travis. And I'm George. And George is in for a fright this week as we push him into the depths of 70s exploitation with a rather mainstream horror film that everybody's seen. (laughs) This week, we're going to watch Halloween. Are you ready, George? Yes, sir. You have your lights off and your popcorn ready? Yes, sir. Catch okay, now no <laughs> no necking on the couch now, you two, because you got to pay attention. Uh, don't worry about that. Totally. Now, of all the films that we've done so far, this is the one that I want to talk about the most, and I also could spoil at any moment. So, Travis, I think without further ado, we should get to work. Let's do it. All right, we're back, George. It's like November 1st up in there, because Halloween's <laughs> over. Yeah, pretty much. Put up the Christmas lights. Oh, no. No. (laughs) At least let me get to Thanksgiving first. Guys, please. The Jersey thing is to just leave your lights on all year on your house and then just turn them on in November. That's a a political (laughs) statement, I think, in these parts of the country. That's fine. That's funny. (laughs) So, George, do you have any initial thoughts before we open up the syllabus and bash you over the head with the curricula? Like important thoughts, probably probably nothing. I mean, is is there anything just wanting to get out? Probably nothing important. A diarrhea in your soul that just must <laughs> burst forth through every pore, that kind of thing. N- no, not really. But I okay, did good. like it. I did like well, it this week. I, I okay. hey, our work here's done. Travis, I'll see you next week. <laughs> we'll think of a yeah. movie on the way out. That's, All right, that's bye fine. guys. That's <laughs> get the lights. Cue the music. <laughs> it was good. Holy crap. The music was fantastic. And not just the music, but the whole, I don't know what you call that. Like all the sounds Score. in the movie were great. Right. You know, there was parts where the, you know, the do 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 where it was getting to a tense point and it dissipated. No, no, no. It, uh, it, it went sharp. Mm-hmm. Like it went out of tune. So right. it was e- even more dissonant. And you were like, whoa, what is about to happen? Yeah, it sounds like somebody's like increasing the tension in a piano as it slightly right. goes up out of key. Yeah. It's almost like in, in, in The Dark Knight where they have that, that long chord that's just like mm-hmm. going... Yep, just a slowly yes. tightening... Uh, yeah, and yep. you're like, you just feel the tension from that. Which yes. is cool because you know his idea was basically a haunted house so you get all those jump scares with the loud music and the mm-hmm. like when he jumps out from behind the car he just stands up but you get that sound because it's almost yep. like what you get when you're in a haunted house and something comes around the corner he screamed it to people without the music and people hated the movie mm. well i can see why i mean well the music is very important it completely changes everything and it, w- when i really when I really noticed it, the two points when I really noticed it is the one that I just mentioned when it went out of tune. Then the next time it was when Bob was in the kitchen mm-hmm. and you could just hear him breathing. Right. You could just hear the breathing in the mask. Yeah, it's almost like the Jaws. When you hear that, you know the shark's coming. You know he's there. But it's better right. than that. But you hear that breathing. You're like, okay, where is he? Yeah. And, and I, he's I, there. I don't know where he there. is, but he's there. <laughs> right. And I actually got to see this movie in the theater last or two years ago. I went to the movie theater to see it, and all that stuff is like exaggerated with the shadows and everything. So 
you know, off the shoulder shots. Like er almost every scene has a blank space of darkness. So you're like always wondering if he's Mm -hmm. there. Yeah, it's purposely. It was shot beautifully. There are a couple of things like like issues that I did have with it, but I think you guys would just call it trope. You know, like how the hell does he hit her on the shoulder? Like he hits the cliche. Yeah, hits her on the shoulder. It's like how did he miss? He was right there. I have some input for that that we might get to later. Put the put a pin (laughs) in that exact scene, and we'll come back to it. Yeah, put a pin in that one. But you know, there was stuff like that, like that was hokey or. it's cliche because yeah, it's cliche. You're, you're watching the movie 40 years later. So everything that you that is trope was not really trope then became trope because they set the precedence okay. back then. So that's the disadvantage of watching a movie 40 years later. Yeah. Well, there was like I said, those are those are little things, mm. I think. If you look at the the movie, you know, as a whole, and you kind of just, you know, don't think too critically. You just watch the movie. Like you said, the camera work, the angles. the That's a beautiful movie. It's yeah. beautifully shot, and it sounds great, and I, I liked it. And it's a low-budget movie. It's of maybe not the same budget of Clerks, but it's, I think, three hundred grand they spent on it. But it was shot in, in I think, a 20-day shoot schedule. Same issue with, you know, local actors, friends. Mm-hmm. Um wives of yeah, people involved the acting in the wasn't that great but exactly. it was passable wait the one. a minute okay hold on guys <laughs> I'm gonna need George to take that back or I'm gonna expel him from the remedial film class <laughs> right now Instant I didn't edit. say it was terrible no the acting wasn't is that great compared to Clerks the acting is Oscar award winning so George you are from the New Jersey kind of philly area of new jersey right we've covered that there we go with the geography again and just for our map friends well, uh, it's relevant you know you're you're north <laughs> of philly but actually you're more east but you're in eastern new jersey we thought for a minute but actually it's western new jersey do i remember our <coughs> conversation correctly yeah yes okay so we are you are southeast in, southeast of philly you are from a town or near a town called haddonfield but this movie takes place in Haddonfield. But this Haddonfield actually physically was created in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. Now come with me mm-hmm. on this journey. Mm-hmm. Pasadena, California. Even made up to look like a small town. Did you notice the biggest flaw uh, in the entire Pasadena set that really gives it all away? Um, now Travis knows... N- no? Travis knows a thing, but it's not the thing I'm referring to. But Travis, go ahead and say the thing that everybody already knows. Well, everybody already knows that there's no fall leaves in California. So uh, all those all trees are leaves. so green. Why are there leaves on the yeah, ground if the trees green. are green? Also, there's a palm there tree. Are. Everybody always talks about Some the palm, palm tree. In fact, in that mm. Halloween three novelization, they bring up the palm tree. It's just like Halloween <laughs> three novelization. Stop being so mean to Halloween one. It's a good movie. It's going at Here's em. the thing I noticed today in my 100th and 125th viewing of this movie or something stupid. Uh, the walls in Pasadena, California are much too thin to handle an Illinois winter. If you notice anytime they're on the second floor of any of these real houses, mm-hmm. the walls are two and a half inches thick. No insulation. Very thin windows. Perfect for Pasadena. But if that was Illinois, everyone's heating bills would be $5,000 a month, 1970s dollars. How do you know how thick the walls are? You can tell from the perspective shots. 
It it feels like, and it actually it, it it lends a little bit to the horror because it feels like if Lori were to trip and hit the wall, she'd go right through. Very thin walls, very thin windows. Interesting. I I didn't even think of that. A lot I've of seen a lot of fully glass doors. There well. is a lot of glass in these houses. A lot of uh, for for Illinois, there's a lot of patios and lanais and you know little places to hang out outside. Yeah, I wonder why they chose Illinois. They wanted the middle America kind of feel, like that uber suburb kind of thing. Not, you know, they don't talk about Chicago at all. It's like mm-hmm. it's like in the middle of nowhere part of Illinois. They just wanted that middle middle America feel. That's I, I think that's why they didn't go with Jersey, obviously. And obviously, they're not going to go with California, which is where they filmed it. Right. Yeah, I didn't even think of the walls, but I did. You know, you notice the trees, the green, the palm trees, the leaves, and all that stuff, and then you know that Deborah Hill is from this area, so it's definitely based on Haddonfield, New Jersey. When you say this area, She's, you mean the one that you're physically present in, not that the one that we're looking in, yes. at on the TV. Yes, so she was a co-writer of the film, and she based it on her, based the writing on her life as a, as a babysitter in South Jersey, Haddonfield. So that's where they get that from. But And they did, when they scouted locations, she was part of the picking of the location and that part of Pasadena and where the houses are is right off of some sunset Boulevard. I believe it looks just like where we go trick or treating every year. I mean, yeah. it looks exactly like that. So it does. It, the location's perfect as a newbie, George, did you feel like you were going home a bit when she would be walking the streets of fake Haddonfields, California slash New Jersey slash Illinois? Does it, re- does it resemble enough to you, your area of New Jersey to think, oh, hey, I go to this place to trick-or-treat. Or is it just sort of the same? Tell me about that. I want to know your experience because this is the first time ever talking to a Haddonian fieldian about <laughs> what they think of the fake Haddonfield. Yes. But that was one of the things that I thought, actually, was that it looks like Haddonfield. It, it really does. Like, you know how they were talking, the sheriff and the and the doctor, about how and, you know, the sheriff was saying, this is just, you know rows and you know streets and streets of families with kids and blah 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 blah, blah. like that's that's Haddonfield mm-hmm. yeah and that, I mean that's why god I was 17 and I started when I first got my car the first one of the first things I did was I drove to Haddonfield in in October mm-hmm. playing a cassette tape of John Carpenter's score of this movie <laughs> and I drove around Haddonfield and I thought it was the coolest thing I was like I'm I'm doing this. <laughs> it was the dumbest seventeen year old thing to do. But I'm like, I have to do it. It's October and it's Haddonfield and it's the birthplace of Michael Myers and I have to do this drive. And now we take our kids trick or treating there. Yep, we trick or treat in Haddonfield every year. Every year. In honor of Halloween. And it does. It feels just like the movie. You know, we're not pulling it out of our ass. It looks exactly put like it, that. Put so. it back in so we may proceed with the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so movie gets off to a, a pretty fun start there, George. You get your music we already talked about. You get the pumpkin with the teeth that line up directly above each other. So, I mean, I don't know why he's smiling. Every time he would close his mouth, he'd chip his teeth. That has to stink. That is a, mm-hmm. a terrible existence. I feel bad for that pumpkin. And then you get... Well, tell me, George, what did you think of the opening scene? What does the opening scene do to a, a first-time viewer? I don't know what I'm supposed to expect because the first time watching the movie, it's not like I don't know this is about Michael Myers. But I didn't know that the first scene starts off with him as a kid. The whole time I'm thinking that this is a grown man and 
when he puts on the mask, I could see that it's a clown mask. I'm like, that's weird. And then you see the arm with the knife in it. And it's like, that looks like a really small arm. (laughs) And then, you know, obviously the whole thing is in first person, which is awesome. When he goes outside and there's, you know, the, you know, the mother and father arrive and you think like he's going to slash them too. And then the camera pans and it's just a kid. So what was your feeling when you saw it was a child? Because that, that to me is a twist. My feeling was, oh. Okay. I mean, that seems legitimate. Oh. Now explain this to me, Dan. The TV ads from the 70s show that reveal. How dumb is that? Dumb. I mean, you are kind of. I mean, there's other things that would be more spoilery. You know, there are dumber. Yeah, but there are dumber ways to approach it. But I think what you're you're intimating is that it was a bad move because it gives away a nice little opening twist. And I would concur. Yeah, it would have been great to be like, "Wow, that's a kid!" Like, mm-hmm. you know, here's here's that to me. That's that's one of those things where you're just like that. That you save that. You save that. That's your I, opening scene. I agree. It might yeah, just be that. overconfidence, though. Like, the director, his team, the producers, they might all feel like, oh, we did such a good job of nailing this at a kid's height with a kid's arm, although that's actually a, you know, a Deborah Hill, the, Deborah Hill's the, arm. the Haddonfield yeah. native. But, <laughs> you know, the small arm, the small knife, the, the low camera angle, so you think it's a kid, they might just be so busy patting themselves on the back that they pulled off that shot that they don't realize right. that, half their audience isn't going to realize it's a kid until the reveal. Now, the thing about that scene to me that stands out is it's one take. It, mm-hmm. There's no edit until he picks that mask up mm-hmm. and puts it on. That's where they cut it. And the reason why they did, the, did that was that entire scene was longer than one reel of film. So they kept running out of film, so they had to figure out where they were going to cut it. It's got the Panaglide camera, the Steadicam, which was pretty new. They had just introduced that. Mm-hmm. So... It's kind of a ballsy move to take a low-budget film. Your first shot is this four-minute unedited uh, scene, and then it ends with a six-year-old kid holding a knife the size of his arm. Mm -hmm. You might also point out, too, that in a lot of ways, as a technical achievement, it kind of makes it like the matrix of slasher movies. Right. To just, like, put so much, to hedge so much of your bet on this technology and then to pull it off. And then do the uh, pull away with the crane, uh, showing the you know the whole the whole shot of the house, the kid, the family. They set the tone so early, like you hear the the little chant that the kids sing about trick or treating, with a dark screen, and then it starts with him stepping out from the tree, and then you see the house. Like it, it, you're in it, like right then. They, they don't waste any time. You're like right there. I love that. Now, did you notice, George, when you were watching the movie, that even on a widescreen TV, you have black bars at the top and bottom. Do you take note of that when you're watching the movie or not? Uh, Sometimes. So the reason I bring it up, uh, we were talking about the low budget for this movie, and it's it's a very low budget independent type film, even for the era. But they did not skimp on film quality like Clerks had to, and they filmed it in like a full scope. So it's like this is about as fancy as a camera gets in 1977 when they're making the movie, 78. So they've use the best cameras. They're using a California crew and they're using 35 millimeter film. Whereas like chainsaw used 16 millimeter. So they put all this money into the tech and into their technicians. And so they end up having to save money elsewhere, but there's a certain amount of like mainstream appeal to Halloween that you don't get with a Texas chainsaw massacre. 
in terms of just the sheen of the production, the quality of the product that they make. Yeah. And it's just an interesting debate. You know, I'm sure there were people that would suggest, oh, hey, to save money, cut it down to 16 millimeter, move to actual like central Illinois and use local talent and just see how it goes, you know? And you could, you know, push your money around in different ways, but by hedging all their money into, you know, director, camera quality, crew quality, look what they got, man. Well, Carpenter said he wants full control. He'll do it if you give me full control, and I want my name above the title, and he got that. But yeah, like you're saying, he he knew what he wanted it to look like, and before the movie that I watched two years ago, he comes on and talks about it, and that he he was very adamant about the uh, the scope of the film because he wanted to uh, you know have those blank spaces, like it was important to him to feel like at any moment any of these dark shapes would move. From the from the shadows, yeah. something is always there. So yeah, I'm sure with him he was like, yeah, this is this is important, I and mean, this is where we have to spend our money. Well, and that's one thing you'd lose nowadays when we all get spoiled by all the content being made for digital. Knowing the aspect ratio of every TV made, you know, everything fits perfectly into the corners, and everything is what it is. Back then, this was literally the most real estate that a director had mm. to work with. So he created for himself a campus and a visual like scale. You know, he, he gave himself more choices as to where to hide those shadows and where to jump out from. And in a theater, it's way more impressive. But on a TV, mm-hmm. it gets squished down. But we have to remember in theaters, it gets expanded out. Right. Mm. And like you said, how, how the film looks. When you watch this movie, all the iconic shots, you could take any shot from this film and make it into a lobby card or a film poster. We need to bring back lobby cards, by the way. Yeah, right. That's the thing <laughs> of, of a bygone era, but man, love me a lobby card. I agree. George is like, Definitely. what? He's yeah, like, I'm like, what's a lobby card? card? Yeah, okay, in your terms, the old vintage concert posters where they're multicolored, it says the name of the band, where they're playing, you know. Yeah. Lobby card was like a movie poster in that size that kind of would go in the bulletin board. You know, people would walk um, by on the street and they'd see it's almost like a movie poster before they had these, you know, poster cases. They would have these little poster cases out by the box office. Okay. It's and almost like the real go. life, gotcha. like in-person equivalent of the back of the DVD case mm. with the little pictures they put on the back of the DVD case right. only printed off at like five by seven cards with just stills from the movie to make you think, ooh. Right. There's boobs in this. I should probably go see like, it. Like a press kit. Yeah, I gotta see this. It'll show you the whole cast. It'll show you. It'll give you a synopsis. Some of them. Yeah, they're informational. I guess. Just another way to yeah, advertise. Yeah, I, I got it. Yeah, it's good yeah. So George, you'd print them on card. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, okay. Lobby cards. Okay. Mm-hmm. They feature heavily in that new Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You see some lobby cards when she goes to the movies to watch herself. You're really still talking about lobby cards. It's a, he just had another beer. I don't know if you want to. a movie. <laughs> He's going to get all <laughs> mouthy. Watch out, America. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So we were talking about the, the choice to go with the highest quality film. No skimping on that. Right. Period. And it shows. Yeah, that was a that was a great choice. To imagine that he he's having to sell to producers like I'm gonna shoot it right here, so we don't have to pay for travel. I'm gonna use the best cameras possible, and then I'm gonna throw fake leaves in the road so it looks like fall. And they're just like, oh, okay, okay. like, good luck pulling that off. And he did mostly. I would say so. Took balls. Though, I mean, that's the kind of that's the thing that makes an auteur 
an auteur, right? Like, just put it on me. I've made the decision, and we're sticking to the plan, and it's all going to be fine. Absolutely. Yeah, Travis was just about to bring up some continuity issues, which I noticed <laughs> as well. Yeah, that kind of fell by the wayside. Like, all of a sudden, it's sunny, and then it's dark. You know, stuff like that. that you don't know how yeah. long it took them to say that sentence? <laughs> it might have been a four-hour <laughs> sentence, and just for the sake of the pacing, they only showed you the beginning and the end, which took place at light and in dark. I wish this DVD came with a map of the neighborhood. So many damn maps. So <laughs> you could sit there and go, okay, this is where the Myers house is, this is where the Wallace house is, and this is where, you know, it, you can kind of see the layout of the town so you know where everybody is. Okay, hold on. Let me explain why that doesn't matter. Why it doesn't matter? Yeah, okay. the layout of the town doesn't matter. Because when, in the beginning, when Laurie put the key underneath the mat of the Myers house, mm-hmm. it was walking distance father it was walking distance from her house right (laughs) then right she gets in a car and drives with her friend and smokes marijuana for four hours dan that's your theory (laughs) you know i'm told that time kind of slows down man (laughs) okay um then after driving for four hours uh dr loomis Okay, Dr. Loomis notices the station wagon down the street from the Myers house. Right. Which was in walking distance to Laurie's house. But Laurie's house doesn't matter as much as where they're babysitting. The station wagon was parked in front of where they were babysitting. Right. Which was around the corner from Laurie's house in walking distance. You might be making an assumption. You know what we need is a map printed on the back of a lobby (laughs) guard. (laughs) now did you notice george at one point uh dr loomis named after sam loomis from psycho did you catch that we talked about it during psycho but no yeah dr Mm -hmm. loomis sam loomis that psycho reference uh he's talking to sheriff brackett outside of the i think it's outside of the hardware store and behind loomis but like in front of us you see michael come to a stoplight and then make a left turn right behind Yes, that so, was really unfortunate. So scary. He's just there, man. <laughs> oh, I knew it was going to happen. He's just there, I would like to ask man. Carpenter if if he directed, like, it looks like he just drives by. It would be funny to know that the decision was that Myers saw him and waited until he turned. Because that's, My- uh, that's what Loomis does. He kind of turns to his left and he's looking down the street and then the car stops on his right shoulder. You mean your assumption right isn't turns. that he's just following traffic laws? <laughs> no, it looks like he waits. He he like waits, and then all of a sudden, right as Loomis turns, that's when he turns. Like he's. I think, that's I think if you go back and look at it again, he turns as soon as he's able to. There's cars going perpendicular. So he's following the driving. The, yeah, uh, traffic he's just laws. following traffic laws. It just it just and happened. I noticed his hands were at ten and two <laughs> when he was driving. What makes me really happy when I watch that scene now is because earlier you see him actually turn his head at the girls when he drives by. Right. But in mm-hmm. this one he intentionally like keeps his head straight ahead. And I just imagine him in his little like Michael Myers brain being like, Oh God, I gotta get by just it's like think that like thought next I, time you watch that theme is just Michael Myers thinking, "Who got it? Oh, you almost got me! <laughs> I gotta go! I almost got caught!" <laughs> like when a when a cop pulls out like behind you and you like all of a sudden straighten up. That was like Michael Myers. He's got black and white fever, but instead it's like bald and beige fever. <laughs> yeah. 
hey, while we're doing thought experiments, I want to go back for a second. When we were talking about the one take in the opening scene, we didn't address the fact that uh, Judith Meyer's boyfriend is about a 10-second man. Well, yeah. So was Bob. So, yeah, I was good. I, was good. <laughs> I mean, not the best performance there, but, you know, it's the 70s. No. They weren't educated. But here's what I want to know. If you're that yeah. actor and you're upstairs, what do you think you're thinking when they're like, okay, and then you come back down the stairs? Do you think you're like, oh, shit, all my friends are going to see this and they're going to think I'm bad and bad? It's like when Joey did the hemorrhoid commercial. It's exactly that. <laughs> or the, the, no, it's even worse, the herpes. Didn't he do like a herpes, a herpes right. ad in Friends? A poster, yeah. Why do we talk about Friends every week I on don't this know. show? Because <laughs> it's relevant. Is it? Uh, no, it's not. But yeah, it, it is. It's very much like his herpes ad where it's just like, man, it's a paycheck. I'm in a movie. But... Like, come on, director, can we please, just one more minute? Just give me one. Can't you just? And why didn't why didn't Myers kill the boyfriend when he came downstairs? He stepped away like he backed up. Like if you're willing to go upstairs and hatchet your sister, why wouldn't you take out the during the act or right after the act? Or I don't whatever? think like, that's why he did it. We never know why he did it. No, he's just. But evil. I, I found it weird that he backed up like the POV showed him back up when the boyfriend yeah i remember and actually yeah. in his head at like, that point he was probably also going oh man i almost got caught <laughs> <laughs> okay so aside from his internal dialogue being a little bit looney tunes uh otherwise uh, the shape is kind of intimidating he's kind of a scary mofo i would think so yeah what, what's your uh, impression on the aesthetics of that character like i, I know with with leatherface we talked about his first appearance and how how it was like just in your face, but then Myers was more of a build-up, more like Alien, where it was show him a little bit here, show him a little bit there, and then finally a reveal of the whole shape and the face and all that stuff. Like, Myers was way more ominous right. and nerve-wracking to me. Than Leatherface? Yeah. Okay. Probably because of the build-up, maybe? Probably. Uh, Shatner would be proud that, <laughs> that his face was uh, ominous because that's what they used. They used the Shatner mask. To make Michael Myers a Shatner mask, yeah, uh, Captain Kirk from Star Trek. That's what that was. Yes, they had three masks. They had a clown mask, a uh, old man mask, and then this Captain Kirk mask. The prop guy ripped off the sideburns, cut out the eyes, and painted it white. And that's what you get. You get an iconic face for the shape. So you get royalties for that? I don't know. You should. But like I was saying earlier, it's funny that everything that you look at Myers and you're like, oh, he's doing this for this and he's doing that for that and this means this and this. Like when they were making this movie, Nick Castle was just given a mask and told to stand here, move here, walk here. There's no character study like what Gunnar Hansen did with Leatherface where he he studied uh, mentally ill people and he got into character and he what's I'm, what am i thinking here and there but nick castle was just like all right, oh you want me to stand here all right i'll stand here and i'll look the one time you see a little bit of something is when he kills bob bob and he and tilts he, his head yeah that was directed uh, yeah, absolutely yes, that was carpenter had said that was the only time he ever told nick castle to do something he he said just stand here and admire it yeah and when he describes it later he says it's almost like he's looking at a um, a butterfly collection that was his direction. Look at him like you're looking at a butterfly collection. So that's what he he's like looking at it and he's kind of admiring what he has. Yeah. Yeah, it's creepy because yeah. it's that that to me I, that's that is one of the most iconic that and obviously the ghost 
which I love when he puts the sheet on and yeah. he's the ghost. I, when I was a kid, that was the scene that got me the most. It, it got your and not because there's nudity. It got your ghost, saw, Travis. It got my ghost because I saw it on regular TV. I didn't see it on cable, so I didn't even know there were boobs in that scene until later. So when she said, mm. "Do you see anything you like?" You were like, "Yeah, that ghost." <laughs> <laughs> I was like eight. But yeah, because it came on regular TV. It came on, I think, 81. One thing that I noticed in this, and I, you know, George probably noticed it too, but as a person who watches a lot of these movies and this one pretty frequently, the quality of the direction from John Carpenter and the setups of his shots, you could accomplish roughly, I would guess, half or more, 60% maybe, of the ominous Michael Myers stuff with an action figure. Right. It really yeah. doesn't take much. Like you're not asking for the character study because really that guy's a statue with a scary face. Right. And it's the lighting guy that's making him lighting. really scary. Like even when he comes down the steps, you could, the light shining through the banister catches his face just at the right times where he's kind of coming. It, it almost makes him like he's moving faster because it almost looks like a like a strobe. Yeah, like a strobe. Mm-hmm. I would say almost every scene, the lighting, even out when he's just a shadow in, outside the house. And my favorite is when he's walking in the house carrying Annie from the garage. Mm-hmm. And he walks up the steps. It's like he just walks her up the steps and he kicks the door in. Every kid has that fear of what's going to get them when they're outside or on the side of the house or in the basement or whatever. And they play that up. Yeah, and also to Dan's point, you know, if you did it with an action figure, he could still do the I'm here and now I'm not here thing. Because mm-hmm. that was like a, another ominous thing. Like right. he just disappears. Like the laundry line, which yeah. is another iconic scene where he does nothing. Yeah. He's just standing there. Could have been an action figure. Yep. A lot of torso in those scenes when he pops up, disappears, pops up, disappears. But in this movie, it's just because he pops up and disappears. Like it's the same move as torso that we talked about in a previous episode. But. This time around, he actually is just like that that cat-like in his ability to hide. And he's not hulking. Like, all the movies now, they make Myers like six foot nine, you know, 280 pounds of muscle. And it's like, he's not a big character. He's almost like a sports car. He's not like a Big Mac truck. I never understood why they made him so big in later movies. They had Jason Envy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I perceived him as a, a little big. Yeah, but he's not... He's not. He was a pretty tall muscular. guy, but He's not... tall, he's slender... Yeah. He looks, he's sleek, I guess is the word you would say. Yeah, he's, he's tall, but yeah. not, you know. He's not a, a superhero. His intimidation right. doesn't come from the amount of bench presses he can do. Right. And it, a lot of the intimidating shots are really just cropped. Like his scene where he's watching Annie from outside the house, and it's just his cheek and the side of the eyebrow and the ear, and that's it. You mentioned earlier that the Leatherface debut is really in your face. Uh, I think it's really funny that in a lot of the Myers shots and the entire Myers debut, it's really in his face. It's subjective for most of it, or it's like over the shoulder, third person, or very close mm-hmm. to it. It's a very interesting choice. It, it's the opposite in many ways of the Leatherface approach, but I don't know that it's more effective because it's a, of the choice or just because of the execution of Carpenter and the crew, but it is more effective. It's effective because his purpose is he's a stalker. He's not really what Leatherface is. When he pops up at the hedge and a few times at the beginning, he's on screen long enough for you to realize he's there and to get a glimpse, but he's never on long enough for you to really pick apart the costume. And so you have this thing. Have you guys ever done the thing where you're like, you go into a bathroom and the lights are off. It's like, you know, you you go to wash your hands. You're like, I'm not going to turn the lights on just to wash my hands. But then you catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror 
and there's not enough light for you to see your full face, but you can see like the highlights of your face and your brain does that thing where it tries to draw the rest of your face. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. It's like the old Candyman trick. It's a good way to scare the crap out of yourself because your brain is not Mm -hmm. a very good artist, but what it draws is freaking (laughs) terrifying. (laughs) And that's what that shape face does because you do, you see the eyes right away and then your brain doesn't see the rest. And as he leaves the screen, you have to like draw in the, your, your brain is like, oh, I, I think I just saw a really scary thing. Let me draw it as terrifyingly as I can. Thank you, brain. Mm-hmm. But I think once you do see it, it's even worse than what your brain drew. Like when he strangles Linda and she pulls the sheet off of his head, you get a really good look at the mask and it's lit kind of with a blue, bluish tint. And it picks up all the shadows, but it's it's a nice clean shot, and it's it's as creepy as like a distant view. But this that blank face, it's it's pretty scary. Yeah, the la- the lack of emotion in a situation that you would expect some like vigor is it's so juxtaposed. It's very it adds to the creepy. I love this the scene at the beginning in the school where they're talking about mm-hmm. fate, and it mm-hmm. cuts to the outside view, and she looks outside and. A lot of times I end up just catching the car because it's got the sticker. For some reason, the car and the right. sticker, I'm always like, oh, yeah, that's the car. And the whole time he's looking at me and I don't see him yet. And then by the time the frame changes, I've noticed him. And still, it's just like, oh, he was there the whole time looking at me like, yeah. Which scene are you talking about? Where she's in the school and the teacher's talking about fate. Oh, okay. And she looks out the window and she sees the station wagon. Is he the, standing there? He's standing He's standing the there the whole time, George. Holy but shit. But you didn't yeah. see him. <laughs> he's standing That's right there. That's why it's so scary. You have to see. It takes a couple of viewings <laughs> even... to notice him. But once you know he's there, George, he's been there the whole time looking at you. Do you feel safe? I don't. <laughs> but what's funny is in a lot of ways it's a static image. Like It reminds me a lot of the old pictures people would do. In in the seventies, these Polaroids you see of people like standing next to their car, like, "Oh, I got my right. first car, Dad. Take a picture." Only it's Michael Myers, and he got his first car, and he's not so not <laughs> so my keen. first kill. Yeah, I don't know, man. That's that's a scary shot, and I'm glad it didn't. I'm glad it worked. Like George didn't see him, didn't realize he was there, and next time you're gonna notice him, but it's gonna take you a minute, and you're gonna be like, "Oh, oh, good, he's there." Yeah. Now, in a lot of <laughs> ways, George, I'm not gonna spoil too much. Uh, for our listeners who aren't as familiar with the Jalo, but you have seen Deep Red. Yeah. And the way that that shot is framed reminds me a lot of a certain shot in Deep Red that is framed in a way that the first time you see it, you don't notice it. And the second time you do, you do. You know what I'm referring to? I think so. Okay. We'll assume you do. And that's that's an old, it's a good trick. Uh, Argento used it in Deep Red and then Carpenter used it here. Draw the attention to one part of the frame and then have mm-hmm. something scary somewhere else in the frame. Well, they do that when, when Annie's on the phone and she's in the washroom. And she's talking on the phone with Paul. She crosses the camera twice, and the second time she walks across, you can see the shape in the background watching her. Oh, yeah. And then she walks past it again, and the frame is empty. The window frame is empty of a body. The door, yeah. Or the door frame. So it's like they do that a few times. She's outside. They do it with the the curtain as well. So it is. Mm -hmm. He basically does that the whole movie where you see it, then you don't, then you see him. And he allows the camera to tell you where to look. But then there's so much other things going on in the background that you got to, like Dan said, you got to watch it a few times to kind of see where all those little nuances are. Well, and not to mention the best shot in the entire movie. And I know I alluded to it back in the Batman episode with the Joker's reveal. 
when she is standing in the doorway, mm-hmm. she's in her like pure terror mode. She's seen all the dead people. She doesn't know he's still there. And he appears in the doorway, but it doesn't look like he's moving at all. It's just that his face like blooms out of the darkness. Right. Over mm-hmm. her shoulder. Oh my God, that's so scary. Just every time. I, I read on, on that scene they do like a, it's like a small pin light kind of thing on the face that's like turned down to almost 0%. And then and then they just kind of turned it up a little bit. So he didn't step in the frame. He was always there. Oh, that's mm. so creepy. So when they when they turn the lighting up a little bit, then you start seeing the features of the mask. And then and then that's when he steps out and misses her with the knife. Mm. <laughs> the, the 12-foot knife totally misses her. So one other thing, though. I mean, this Michael Myers is definitely not a 6-foot, 10-and-a-half, 328-pound pro wrestler from Death Valley, right? This is a smaller, regular-sized right. guy who's just intent on doing horrible things. Those are the stats for The Undertaker. Do you guys remember The right. Undertaker from yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wrestling? <laughs> Got it. Uh, the reason I bring up The Undertaker is Mark Calloway, uh, my favorite pro wrestler of all time, totally stole Michael Myers' sit-up move. Did you catch that when he's on the bed having been poked in the... Yes. Is it the eye with the hanger at that point? And then stabbed in the chest. And he sits up from the waist, oh just like The Undertaker, God. and then he turns mm-hmm. his head toward the camera. Ooh. It was funny. I was sitting here with George watching that scene, and he's he's having a conniption fit <laughs> because he's doing what every he's, person he's does in dead. the theater. He's not Why are you him. there? And his reaction was more of a guy reaction, where it's like, uh, "Come on, why are you? Why? Why are you doing that?" And then you have the the girl reaction is more like, "He's gonna get up. He's gonna get up. Or don't go in the closet." So what you're but saying is, I s- have the female reaction when I watch that scene. Okay, <laughs> noted, noted. No, but I. It was funny watching him tap his leg because it was. I, I watched it with my son the night before. He's 14 and he's like seen it and he's he's he wanted more. So when he was watching it, he was almost bored and it was pissing me off. But <laughs> I went to grab him like, you, you kids, you don't get it. But he was doing the same thing that George was doing, but he was making like a, a, a chuckle sound like a, he was going because he was thinking the same thing you were thinking. Oh, she dropped the knife again. Oh, why is she not running? Oh, what is going on here? Oh, he's going to get up. But he right. was doing it in more of a, uh, I can't believe I'm watching this kind of thing. I don't know if he liked it or not, but by his reaction, I knew he was getting angry at the same stuff that you were getting angry well, at. Yeah, that was that was one of the parts where I thought, this is such a typical thing to but it, do. But it's one like, of the first, let your, so like, it why are, How are you letting your guard down in right. this situation? How are you throwing the knife on the ground right next to him? Twice. How are you, put, how are you <laughs> leaving your back turned to him for that long like that's that's what i was thinking because i don't think any of the characters look at him as a as an unstoppable entity yes they're they're thinking he's he just i just buried a 12 inch blade into his chest after stabbing him in the eye with a hanger i should be good well in here <laughs> after i just put a needle through his neck like she's just not thinking he's force and that plays into the tropes that we were talking about earlier because george i'm gonna cite a conversation you and i had after you watched deep red which again italian giallo for those of you who aren't familiar dario argento 1976 right about the time that carpenter would be writing this movie deep red is taking uh the new york grindhouse scene by storm it's all over italy it's the biggest giallo since the last big giallo that argento made that changed everything here's the thing George watched Deep Red on my recommendation, and his review is positive, I would say, generally. 
But do you mm-hmm. remember what you were surprised about at the toward the end there, George? What you told me was that you were surprised that the killer was mortal and killable. Mm. You remember that. I told you I'd bring this up again in the future, and this is when I'm bringing it up, because <laughs> your expectation, because of Halloween and the movies that followed, was that the killer would be an unstoppable killing machine Terminator who would have to be dropped into a vat of molten steel or something to actually kill. Mm-hmm. And so Deep Red existed pre-Halloween. And so the killer was killable. But here, Halloween, they're going to change the game up on you. So I'm betting in 1978, there were a lot of folks in that theater who mm-hmm. were like, oh, thank God she stabbed him in the heart and now she can get some counseling and maybe some totes. <laughs> some totes. <laughs> <laughs> and then boom, he's not, uh, oh my God, he's still alive. Yeah, it was a game changer. And that's that's what, again, makes it so hard about watching a movie that's 40 years old because... It was a trendsetter, but then everybody copied it, so it became predictable. So what you're saying is my whole theory about how one should act when they're being attacked in their home by a madman was influenced by this movie that I had never seen. Yes. Yes. And all the people that copied it. Wow. That was that was deep. <laughs> it's it's true. <laughs> right. Apparently. Well, even like a movie like The Terminator, which you did see, mm-hmm. it's the same premise you have this unstoppable force that it can't be reasoned with it can't be bargained with this was kind of a surprise though that it was unstoppable the terminator is like right because you know he's a you know robot right but it's the same mentality that this thing will not stop until you are dead right so you know carpenter did it first and then cameron did it with a robot I like it. Now, one Michael Myers thing that I noticed this time for the first time in today's viewing, I think a lot of it goes back to the lack of directing, but I think it ends up being an interesting character study. The one time I caught him in the entire movie showing any kind of like physical, it's not physical communication, but like incidental physical action, right? Accidental, incidental physical action. Something an actor would do if told, and a stuntman would do if they forgot they were acting, which is probably the case with this scene. Uh, Annie, when she arrives at the house to babysit, he is in the yard kind of half behind a tree watching the mm-hmm. uh, the scene unfold. He's leaning forward and like holding onto the tree, like mm-hmm. hiding behind the tree, as a kid might hide behind the tree. Mm-hmm. And my initial impression mm-hmm. is, oh, they didn't really give him anything to work with, so he just did what anybody would do. And in his head, he's like, ooh, they almost saw me. You know, it's that same internal... Michael voice that I I keep referring to, but part of me thinks that if you assume that Michael Myers, the child, grows to be Michael Myers in this current form with 13 years of institutionalization in between, the emotional impact of seeing something so similar to the very last time he saw freedom, right? You've now got babysitter, little kid, parents leaving the house, parents in the yard. Michael Myers, the character, might have actually been feeling something there. Well, same in the schoolyard. He he kind of he intercepts the one kid before he runs into him. Yeah, the bully. And he catches him, and he just kind of stands up and stands there, and then follows Tommy, almost like in a "I can relate to you" kind of way. I see you. Yeah, like yeah. you're me. Yeah, I, I felt the same way when I saw that. Game recognizes game, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, but unfortunately, you'll you'll watch an interview with Nick Castle, and he'll just be like, "Nah." None of that's relevant. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, director, John Carpenter, he wanted a big name in the movie. So he went after a couple people they wouldn't bite. So then he got 
Donald Pleasance to play Loomis. Now, George, do you know that Donald Pleasance is a big name? No. Dr. Loomis in this movie, super famous British actor. World-renowned yep. actor. He was a big get. Okay. Actually, his uh, Bond character was the basis of Dr. Evil visually. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they got Pleasance, but then they went ahead and they cast Jamie Lee Curtis, where they got a big name and they didn't really even realize it, because she is the daughter of Tony Curtis and Janet Lee, And you know Janet Lee from Psycho who was the woman killed in the shower. Oh. So that was her mother. So What? So yeah, she was man. the original one of the original scream queens and then her daughter And they didn't know that when they cast them? They they knew it afterwards. They they were like, "Okay, we can use this. This is Janet Lee's daughter. We're going to yeah. we're going to push this." But she got the part because she was she won the part. Holy crap. So, yeah. That's interesting. And she's a pretty good scream queen. I threw, I saw you turn the TV down a few times. You're like, she's screaming a lot. But that kind of became a big thing. It becomes part of the audition process for sure after yes. Halloween. Yeah. Can you scream for me? And then you want to hear it. Because mm. if it's bad, I mean, you look at Annie. She was annoying the whole movie. She was almost like whining the whole time. And I like Annie. She's got sass. I like her too. But I think that she didn't have the endearing qualities that Jamie Lee Curtis had with her character. I didn't sympathize and or empathize with anything that happened to Annie. I just have to bring this up because this was, this is like my confession time. This is Dan's time to come clean. I've seen this movie on VHS full screen, VHS widescreen, DVD full screen, DVD widescreen, <laughs> Blu-ray widescreen, Laser disc. Uh, remastered <laughs> Blu-ray, and also now 4K. And it took me until 4K to notice that Annie doesn't get strangled to death, but instead has her throat slit. What? Right. right. It took me that long. <laughs> <laughs> Who shot first? Was it uh, Greedo or Han? <laughs> yeah, it like came well, out of nowhere. Well, Dan should know a, he's got it in 4K. Yeah. Why, why does he do the left hand? Who blocked out a left hand backhand crossover slash like right you're not even looking for i mean i guess you're not even looking for it so it's a surprise but if you can't see it happened it's not a surprise <laughs> it's a really good choke scene though i mean it's a great joke she does her you don't best need acting in that scene it's very strange yeah yeah and the part where she's like gasping for air like it does sound like she's oh it's she's choking to death yeah it's gross you're gonna see annie again if you do your homework the way that we expect you to. Okay. And what's hilarious is I read the novelization of the movie that that same actress is in later. And they actually reference meta in the book how the main character in the novelization of Halloween 3 notices that the character in the movie Halloween he's watching at a bar <laughs> looks a lot like his ex-wife. That's funny. It was amazing. Wow. So I found out an interesting thing. When they decided to make this movie, the producers were looking for a holiday as a backdrop for this babysitter killer movie. That was their premise. Was It was going to be called The Babysitter Murders, I think. And they were looking for a holiday, and they chose Halloween, and they thought for sure that they couldn't use that title because it's such a cool word, it's such a cool holiday, it's been done. 
So they they researched and researched and researched and found out that not one movie has ever had the word Halloween in the title prior to Halloween, which I thought was ridiculous. Well, they certainly made up for uh, the lack of movies called Halloween by naming two more movies movie. Halloween. <laughs> 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 but I thought that was interesting because even as a like a graphic designer, I look at the word Halloween and it just looks like a cool word. Yeah, that is interesting. Why they have not used that for anything. Like even, I, I know there was one called... Uh, all Hallows Eve, but I don't even know if that came out before or after Halloween. Now, one story that floats around colloquially, and I try not to do too much trivia, but I think you might find this interesting, George. Black Christmas, which we've talked about, is kind of in the same line as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, these movies that happen after Psycho and before Halloween, right? Before, Basically, mm-hmm. when Halloween ad- arrives, it is a game-changer and it is from which all tropes will come from now on, pretty much. But leading from Psycho to Halloween, you have a couple in between, and one of them, Black Christmas, which was directed by the same guy that did A Christmas Story and Porky's, Bob Clark. Everything he did was good, uh, for the most part. There was a sequel in development at one point to Black Christmas that was going to take place on Halloween and be called Halloween. And Hmm. There is no definitive documentation as to how John Carpenter ends up making a movie called Halloween and Bob Clark does not. But the two of them were in some communication and it does, it kind of begs the question as to what conversations and what uh, exchanges were made between the Bob Clark camp and the John Carpenter camp as the babysitter murders kind of takes the place of whatever Bob Clark's Halloween was going to be right around the same time. I don't know that we're ever going to get the full story on that, but I am all ears. If uh, John, are you listening? Bob, are you? Uh, is your estate listening? Give us a call. Give me a call. I really just want to <laughs> know. For me, I don't need to share it. It can be our secret. I just, I just want to know how how it all went down. Let me have the deets, man. Tweet the deets, and I'll just. Did they uh, know each other? My understanding like, is there is, a connection between them two. I I don't know that they did. Bob Clark is an mm. older generation, from what I understand. He's you know ten years older than carpenter right i'm cutting this out if it's not true i'm gonna fact check this later (laughs) but i really i've i've heard talk that the bob clark halloween sequel was even going to deal with babysitters in a small town or you know after having gone home from college you know back to their suburbs so Hmm. a lot of it sounds but i mean a lot of this you can't always trust it because what happens is after the fact people go back and and tweak the details a little bit to better fit what actually came from Halloween, right. so yeah, I don't know who to believe on this. <laughs> it's a problem nowadays. Now, George, this is going to be a bit of a transition, but I just want to take you on a little journey with me here. I know you love my journeys, and I didn't bring a map this time, so sorry, listeners. George, no mm. geography, right? George, <laughs> George do you have uh, a subscription to Netflix? I no, actually, George, you're familiar with Netflix, right? We talked about Stranger Things recently. Yes, of course. Yes. Are you familiar with a show called Mind Hunters? I've seen it. Okay. Like I've seen the I've seen the title pop up, but I've never watched it. I watched like one episode of it. It's okay. Eh. Anyway, I bring it up because it's based on a book. Now the book, Mind Hunters, is written by John Douglas, who is kind of the FBI's first profiler. The guy who made profiling a thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Douglas basically took insight from the psychology field. 
and mixed it with forensics and the stew that he created is basically the ability to walk onto a crime scene in real life and note actions and outcomes that can kind of give you insight into who or what uh, did the crime, right? Okay. So some basic ones, you know, especially in like what they used to call lust murders, you know, what we would now call serial yep. murders, you know, how the body's positioned, uh, what kind of damage is done to the body specifically mm. might give insight mm-hmm. into the motivation of the killer. Crimes of passion. So I, yeah. I bring this up because about a year ago, I finally broke down and went down the John Douglas rabbit hole and read a couple of his books. And the whole time, I'm trying to put these profiles on my favorite movie serial killers because I'm not a true crime guy in the the modern sense. I don't have like, you know, my top 10 favorite real murders. You know, I, I'm not a weirdo like all <laughs> you listening to this. Right. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm no murderino, right? Uh, people think that's funny. Not you guys, but other people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So just the people, people. So for my frame of reference as a fan of these these horrifying scary movies, I kept trying to put these boxes onto Michael Myers especially, but also some Jason Voorhees, you'll learn about him later. Here's the thing that I originally came to. My original conclusion is Halloween is unrealistic because the guys that really do this kind of stuff are just jerking off all over the place. Right? There's just semen mm-hmm. everywhere in these crimes. Oh. Okay. Right, And like for three quarters of the way through the book, I'm like, God, that's too bad because Halloween is so good and it feels so genuine. But for it to be real, you'd have to be like semening all over. The- <laughs> Ew. Right. Ruined it for me for a minute. Yeah. Until I got to later in the book where they actually talked about a case where Douglas had trouble profiling this guy because his profile said the the suspect had to be 17 years old based on how he was acting at the crime and his you know impulsiveness and impetuousness and stuff. All signs pointed to the profile of a 17-year-old killer, and it turned out it was like a 35-year-old killer. Okay. But With constraint. It turned out that 35-year-old killer had spent like 20 years in jail from a young age. Uh. And so it like pauses your sexual development and your other development, being in jail away from society, and then when you come back out, you hit the ground running where you left off. Yep. Taking you back to Michael Myers for a second. Absolutely. If he kills his sister out of some misplaced, mixed up, proto-sexual feeling, right? Some mix of like, you abandoned me and didn't take me trick-or-treating. Also, I'm a psychopath. Also, boobs, right? Stabby, 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 stab, right? Mm -hmm. If that is his mixed up sexual impulse at six, and then he's institutionalized right away, when he comes out at 19 years old, excuse me, when he is released from institutional care at 19 years old, his sexual development would be paused when he went into institutional care. Mm -hmm. So actually what the book ended up doing was kind of setting up a profile for a real Michael Myers, the serial killer as a not semen leaving, but instead, (laughs) you know, his reaction to the females is the stabby stab. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Yeah. Totally. totally. Is there? There's no examples of a Michael Myers type character. Well, besides in that, real life, besides right? that 35 year old, right. the bulletproof thing is they keep trying, but these guys <laughs> just keep dying every time yeah. they get shot. I don't know what the deal they, is. Mm, they right. need a Doc Brown, you know, bulletproof vest. You know, I have a theory. Ooh. I think that maybe Laurie survives because she doesn't get naked. Right. Are you messing with me here, George? Are you pulling my leg? Well, that's one of the tropes. 
That is one but of the You tropes. notice that she doesn't he doesn't even, you know, go after her or come in contact with her her being Laurie until after the kids have gone to bed and she's unbuttoned her blouse. Then then she becomes He's a all about target. trying to kill her. Or you have to be you have to be naked. I mean, remember though with Mike his Myers sister, he wasn't willing to engage when the boyfriend was still there, but he is willing to kill Bob when Bob's alone. So is it that he realizes he can't take on a group? He's got to isolate you one-on-one. So even the kids, he waits till they're in bed, so it's one-on-one, him and Lori. I guess it's how much you want to put on Michael Myers, because, again, he could have sympathy for the children, and that's why he's not doing anything to the children. No. Uh, earlier in the schoolyard, he didn't show any ill will towards the kids. I don't know. Maybe he sees himself. It's weird. I mean, he. I don't. I, if he's, we're not supposed to look into it this much. If he's frozen at six years cool. old, developmentally, he might still see himself as a kid. And if you want to talk about a real case where someone is put into like a you know stasis situation in like adolescence or pre-adolescence, and then maybe put into a situation not an institutionalization, but maybe a a forced labor situation, right? Stunting one's growth until maybe the mid-20s when all of a sudden they want to pick up again in their pre-adolescent phase. Uh, I mean, he, he, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. who knows what that guy did in real life, but you could point to that as being mm-hmm. part of the model, part of the problem. Yeah, You freeze that guy yeah. at nine years old or eight years old, and when he's 25, he wants to be eight and a half, and mm, not a good outcome for anybody in that situation. No. That's true. No. Well, according to uh, according to Loomis, there was no morality at all in right. in Meyer's mind. I mean, if you're so, gonna let that guy control the narrative, but I I think I'm going to. He spent enough time with the guy; he seemed legit to me. Since you brought it up, can we talk about how awesome that little monologue is? The dark, the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I yeah. I, I love. That to me, that's my favorite part of the movie is when he tells his story. Yeah. He earns his I, salary in that scene. Yes, and it's actually a good example of what we were talking about for clerks. When you have the written word delivered by a pro, hmm. it it's it you know it's, maybe as a postscript you can deliver that exact speech as uh, Randall. <laughs> Randall, Randall. <laughs> how, how as, w- as a postscript to this, uh, right. how would Randall deliver? Yeah, the lines from Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> he would act like Annie. <laughs> a lot of sass. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think there's any uh, morality in Myers's brain. I think I don't know that there's any logic either. Is there morality in a six-year-old brain? Yeah, uh, I think there is. If there's a fear of consequence, yes. If there's not a fear of consequence, then it's rare. You, you pretty much live on the edge of doing whatever when you don't fear consequence. Now, I'm not going to break any new ground here, but I'm just going to put this out for George and also for anyone who maybe is a Rob Zombie fan and happened to cross this podcast by accident. Uh, the door is <laughs> over there. And you can just let yourself out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love Rob Zombie as a dude, but man, his movies don't do it for me. But his audio commentary, no. like I will put up with him making movies if he'll give me good audio commentaries because that guy is right. awesome to listen to. 
George. Yes. The thing that works best for me, and I want to hear your opinion as a newbie, Michael Myers, who is this kid? Where does he come from? What's his family life like? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. But as I draw in the blanks myself, the scariest way that I can connect A to B, his family life is great, his sister loves him, his parents love him, and he is a supportive family. And then one day he just fucking kills his sister. Like, whoa, that's way scarier, especially as a parent, to think that you yeah. do everything right. <clears throat> it's the bad seed, right? Like, you couldn't have seen yeah. it coming. There were no indications. And one day you get home to that. Yeah, which is the biggest problem I have with the, the remakes. Is it, 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 it almost makes an excuse for his behavior. To me, it's I don't need that background on Myers. It, it, like you said, it's scarier to think that he comes from a, a, does, a good home and and his sister loves him and he snaps and does that. Does this uh, series eventually evolve into, you know, like Laurie getting through to him and teaching him how to love? You'll ha- you'll just you'll just have to wait. You'll have to wait and see. <laughs> I mean, we actually, that. you know, that, that tra- was a joke. I know. Have you Travis? Obviously not. I'm just, have you seen Halloween two, the zombie one? Because I maybe uh, maybe I don't. Know. I mean, you could read a little bit more, George. George, <laughs> uh, you, you're just gonna have don't. to wait and see, my man. You're just gonna have to wait and see. Can I tell it you? Better not. You know, we talk all the time about how Facebook is either the best thing or the worst thing that's ever happened to the world at least our Mm -hmm. country one thing Mm -hmm. that facebook has brought me knowledge of that i never had before there is a considerable amount of people there exists a lot of people on that internet Mm -hmm. that see michael myers as like a sexy daddy figure no just i want you to live with that for a minute because when i found that (laughs) out take that home that's a (laughs) (laughs) in it it, if you're listening and and that works for you. I'm so happy you found it. Send us some hate mail. But yes. <laughs> I got a lot of questions. If you got time, uh, hit me up in the the socials at the end because really interesting. But that's one thing that the zombie movie uh, kind of does. Now, George, we we're talking about Rob Zombie's remake of Halloween, which at some point I'm going to make you watch somehow. Uh, okay. One thing he does is he spends the first half hour of the movie before this movie takes place showing you how Michael's upbringing is rough and his household sucks and he's bullied at school. Okay. So he becomes he, Michael Myers. He cuts animals up like all the, all the red flags mm-hmm. of a serial killer. They show it. Okay. It's like he comes from a broken home. His mom's a stripper. His stepdad is a, is a drunk and beats her and beats him. And he's cutting up animals in the bathroom. And he's bullied at school. So he's an awkward kid. If you were a person who's everything. really into Michael Myers as your absent stabby father figure, daddy fi- is a daddy figure a father figure? I shouldn't ask. I don't want the answer. <laughs> uh, either way, if you're one of those folks, I wonder if the vulnerable kind of sensitive ooh, Michael as victim, zombie Michael works better, or if you like the, the shape of the actual Halloween better, I'm interested. Hit me up in the socials. I just got to know. Because uh, it just doesn't compute, See, man. I think all that background actually takes away from the character, and it also takes away from the original social commentary of what I believe the story is about. Like, it, it basically says, you're safe nowhere. The... Everybody feels safe in their home. They're in, you know, the tree-lined suburbia. 
and nothing can hurt you there. There's no monsters or whatever. But this movie kind of takes that and turns it on its head. Like in Texas Chainsaw, they're in the middle of nowhere. They stumble across this house in, in Texas. Shouldn't have gotten in that you know, house. They were kind of in... Yeah, exactly. They were in some place they shouldn't have been. Right. They this were, is... The, the It came to them. Yeah. And you're supposed to feel... Uh, this this movie shows you your false sense of security. Yeah, that's way scarier. Which is scary because you yeah. think you know you're safe in your home, you're safe with your friends, you're safe with your kids, uh, and this movie basically says no, where you are most safe, you are not. And to me, that's scarier than any drunk stepdad and stripper mom. It, like to yeah. me, it it it, I don't care about who Michael Myers is, what I care about is what that shape is doing in my world. It's not like Freddy Krueger. It's not like, mm-hmm. you know, Leatherface. This is a an entity, a form of something that is metastasized into the body of this man. It's it's evil. It's pure evil. And, and when you think about that, a backstory really, really doesn't matter to me. I think it cheapens the character. I I totally agree. Totally. I totally agree. Totally. And and also, it it doesn't follow my impression of the mother and father for the short time you see you see them in this movie. Right. Uh, Didn't seem like they look like your mom and dad. They look like just. And also, I mean, is there a family that lives in Haddonfield that has a mother who's a stripper and a dad who's a drunk? No. No. I mean, not to not to my knowledge, like that's they're all well-to-do people. Upper middle class. Upper middle class. Normal. Every day, both parents working, whatever. It, to me, that's that's what needed to be. And I, I love what Dan said earlier about, you know, Meyer snapping and killing his sister who loved him and didn't bully him and treat him like shit. Right. Makes it all the more tragic and all the more scary because we all have six-year-old kids at home at some point. Like, you're going to have a child and you're going to hope that they're, they're growing up okay and normal and they're not going to, you know, stab you at six years old and that's scary when you look at the family and the mother and the father are there they're coming home probably from a night out yeah it wasn't even that late right and they come home and and their daughter's laying dead in her bedroom half naked and their six-year-old son killed her yeah yeah that's way scarier it's way scarier yeah it's almost like the evil 70s version of the leave it to beaver 50s right like in Mm. the 50s it's the father works uh for those of you who weren't around in the 50s or watched TV ever, sorry. <laughs> but just to make my point, I'm going to say the thing that we all already know, right? Dad works, mom's at home, June Cleaver, house is clean, kids are taken care of because June's keeping an eye on them, right? But now you're in the mm-hmm, 70s, right. you're in the suburbs now. And as you said, both parents are probably working. There's a lot mm-hmm. of latchkey kids getting home on yep. their own, not a lot of supervision, but because it's in the suburbs, everything is safe. You know, you're away from the general crime that you see on the nightly news and you've spent all this money to get this house in Haddonfield where everybody is safe and knows each other and the sheriff's just walking around and your daughter's friends with the sheriff's daughter and everything's cool. So you can afford to spend a little bit more money on the house, work a little bit more, and when it's Halloween night, nothing different than any other night, you can trust that the kids will be safe. So... All the parents leave. Every parent in this movie is absent. Every parent is at a party for Halloween, which they're absent for work, so why would they even think twice? 
Meanwhile, Michael Myers, who is like the dirty little secret of Haddonfield, the tragic house of Haddonfield, you know, he's everything from the mythology and the ghost story of Haddonfield to probably the mm-hmm. shame of Haddonfield, right? He killed that girl and, and ruined their safe safety in the 60s. Now he comes home. Their, their ghosts all come home when he comes home. Mm. They all kind of, everything that they've been running from is here now and they're unprepared and absent. And they have to deal with it, right? Yeah. And uh, speaking of that, what is up with the neighborhood full of people that are not involved? Like she's running around screaming, let me in, help me, yeah, whatever. Neighbor, what and they turn that? the light on and then they turn the light off. And it's like people can't be bothered to help her. Like if that happened in my neighborhood, my ass is out there finding out what's going on. I hear a car door slam and I, I'm looking out my window to find out what's going on. Now, mm. are you guys familiar with Kitty Genovese? Do you know that name? It I might be Genovese. I'm not great with my Italian guessing. It's it's Genovese. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, thanks, George, for translating. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, she's the lady who got <laughs> killed in New he York. He did the hand motion. She got killed in New York back in the 60s, and the story in the Times was like, oh, 40 people saw her get killed, and no one lifted a finger. Do you remember this right, story? Right, right, right. Yes, I, know. I think I know that story about. is very much in the minds of the guys making this movie. Right, but it's just sad to think that that's, I don't know. I, I When I was watching it last night and tonight, I thought to myself, like, that's that's something I never noticed before, and it's sad that no one's there to help. No one's helping well, her. Well, not only are they not there, but some people are literally turning the lights off on her. Like, right, the right. feeling of despair that that would give you, just, I'm so close to help, and you've let me down. Woof. Yeah, and we all kind of grew up in... In the towns with the helping hand in the window, you know, that red hand on the white sign. I don't know if you ever... We don't... When I was a kid, that was a big we thing. We don't have those in yeah. Missouri. Oh, you don't? Well, when I was growing up, they had a, a thing where if you were if you felt unsafe, there were houses, there were safe houses, and they had a red sign in the window, like a red hand on a white sign, and you knew that that was a house that you could go to if you were in trouble. We do have those kinds of signs in Kansas City where I grew up, but do you know where they put them? You guys are going to think I'm making Where? this up. They put them on, on their vans. They put them on Quick Trip. <laughs> quick Quick Trip is your safe space. If you need to go somewhere, Quick Trip's got you and they'll give you a fountain drink okay. while you wait. What did you say in their vans? On their vans. <laughs> <laughs> hey kid, that's I got what I was a red thinking. It's like if you're a kid and you're in trouble, just come to this house with the red hand in the window. Yeah. And it's like, okay, every pedophile goes out and gets a red hand and put them in their window. I don't know how you got them. But you got them. I don't know. If I was gonna was say, a is there like a background watch? check for that, I or think so. like might have been a town watch you thing? Have your... I was young. I just knew that that was a safe place. It's a go. different world, dude. It is a different world. <laughs> I'm telling my kids, don't even go to your aunt's house. <laughs> <laughs> we can't trust them. Well, and I brought up Kenny Genovese, 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 right? I, it's just the first time he try. made the Italian hand movement when he said Genovese. He did the hand. I just did, did the I? hands with my mozzarella, <laughs> so I guess that's how it goes. You know, for somebody that watches so many movies in Italian, I haven't picked up any of it. It's really embarrassing. I don't. I mm, can't speak sorry. a lick of it. Mm. Hey, so while we're talking about like Kitty, Kitty, the lady who got killed in New York, whose last name escapes yeah. me because I can't pronounce it. I'm sorry, New York. Um, while we're talking about her, you want to talk about like true crime happening in the backyard of this film production, the golden state killer, the America's favorite murder raper killer guy who just got sentenced to the rest of forever in jail. Mm. And 
uh, opened up a whole new door to DNA uh, crime solving. If you guys watch right. the news, that guy is actively like raping and killing people just a couple hours north of where they're making this movie. Like women all over the Golden State area are afraid to be at home at night. Locked doors, lots of guns, lots of just fear everywhere. Like and then this movie's getting shot. I mean there's there's a lot more of that attitude in this movie than I ever expected. But now having learned more about that case thanks to the media, uh, it's hard mm. not to see like that attitude of a, a public not being protected in the making of this movie. Not to say any of this overlaps at all with the the real cases, except kind of the size and weight of Myers being kind of underwhelming as an intimidating factor. Not unlike the uh, the real killer guy who was like five eight, right? Like not a right. huge dude, kind of nimble kind of athletic look at it again through that lens and you see a Haddonfield where the police are investigating question mark the you know and (laughs) Loomis is doing nothing but slowing down the police response for storytelling reasons like you could argue that his method isn't the worst method and actually what he says specifically in the movie is you know if we send all your cops out to tell the whole town they're going to see him on every street corner Every street corner, right? Uh, you're going to put people into such a state of terror in this neighborhood right. that we're going to look... I mean, what he doesn't say is we're going to look just like Sacramento. Right. Yeah. Whoa. Which does happen in Halloween, too. Yeah. <laughs> and 4. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Halloween 4. <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship with that movie. Right. Uh, you got a truck truck full of guys with rifles. Now, one thing uh, that... I don't know, if George, did you pick up on the fact that they were watching some of like the most famous classic horror movies on that Dr. Demento? Yeah. So the thing that strikes me about those movies being set within the movie, and I know Travis is going to say, well, John Carpenter remakes the thing a couple years later, and that's true, Mm -hmm. but that's not what strikes me. What gets me, George, is that the horrors that the American public, mainstream American public are used to, exist in the TVs of the people experiencing real horror in this movie. Right. Yes. It's that thing where the camera is over the shoulder of Michael Myers and you're basically like snuggling up next to him for a lot of this movie. Mm-hmm. Well, the people watching those movies, those are the same movies you're watching at home when you go home from this movie. So in a way, it's it's not breaking the fourth wall, but it's definitely a Pasadena, California thin fourth wall between you and the people in this movie being terrorized by Michael Myers. Right. Yeah. You're both on the same side looking in at the old horrors and the new horrors are in their house and they're in your house. Right. Yep. Whoa. Yeah. And the one scene where Tommy's looking out the window and he sees Annie being carried into the house. The music is not Halloween music. You're hearing the, I think it's Forbidden Planet. What's going on in the background? I think it's Forbidden Planet. Yeah, it's a score from the old movie. Yeah, and you hear like a bzzz, bzzz. You hear the music from the movie, and it's just as eerie for him carrying her into the house. It's not the Halloween John Carpenter music, right? which they could have easily done. They let you kind of connect the two where they're watching horror on TV, but actually horror is happening right behind them. In real life. I mean, it's very much which is it's Travis cool. driving around at 17 through actual Haddonfield listening to the Halloween right. theme. It was. Because you were scoring <laughs> real life with a the movie theme, and they were scoring life. their real life with the movie theme, man. Whoa, It does man. sound geeky. 
It really does sound geeky, but it was awesome. You, you say it sounds geeky, but uh, <laughs> our, I guess now, competitors in the podcast field, uh, Matt Gorley and Paul Rust, who did the In Voorhees We Trust with Gorley and Rust, and then season two was In Geyers we, or in Myers We Trust with Geyers. And anyway, they did a Halloween podcast, and I think mm-hmm. it was Matt Gorley talked about how he does that still, where you drive around Pasadena listening to the Halloween theme and you identify whether they're predators or prey, the people you see walking <laughs> along the street. It's a game right. he plays. So you're not the only one that drives around. I would love to drive around Pasadena. and l- I, I know for a fact that some of those locations are same. They look exactly the same as they did when they filmed this movie. That would be an awesome photo op. I know the one house where she sits on the brick holding the pumpkin, waiting for Annie to pick her up. Mm-hmm. You can go to that house, and they have pumpkins on their front porch that you can hold and go sit on that little brick wall and take a picture of you holding a pumpkin. Like some of the people that live there, they, they embraced it. Yeah, I do have bad news. It would be a fun trip. Bad news for you, Travis. Uh, our yeah. idea to have an exclusive podcast interview with the family that leaves us pumpkin out, Yeah, freaking Gorley yeah. and Rust got there first, man. So if you guys uh, <laughs> jump over after you're done with listening to our podcast, uh, rate, subscribe, and, and leave a review five stars on Apple iTunes. Uh, after you do all that Slap stuff, that like button. Jump over to uh, In Myers We Trust, and, and they actually got off their butts and, and talked to those folks. Granted, they actually live in California, wow. so it was yeah, a lot cheaper drive. Plus, it was pre-COVID, so they're not hiding but in their they basements. Don't l- they don't live... Two minutes from Haddonfield. No, that's true. They live in like Haddonfield, California, <laughs> with the thin walls. Let's go right. talk to random people in Haddonfield for our podcast. Yeah, I was just gonna <laughs> say, hey, you live in Haddonfield. Well, Deborah Hill's <laughs> no, no longer with us, so we can't talk to her. We're in Haddonfield. <laughs> We're in Haddonfield. <laughs> hey. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm gonna go. I, I gotta go, guys. I got a podcast to go listen to. <laughs> yeah, we should just we should out. pause our recording, listen to 17 <laughs> hours of Michael Myers discussion from the pros, and then come right back here and pick it up where we left off. <laughs> hey, hey, George. Yeah. Are you familiar with uh, these kind of obscure movies? You've probably never heard of them. I, I certainly have never mentioned them. Uh, they're kind of like proto slasher movies that were made in Italy back in the seventies. Have I mentioned? I haven't mentioned. Let me just tell you about the Gelo- gelato, the giallo, giallo, right? The giallo, giallo, the, the, <laughs> giallo. the giallo, which means yellow because of some books. I think we already everybody yeah, knows that no, story please, now. Please tell me about that. So I'm I'm actually gonna break form here because one thing I did today and one thing I always try to do with this show is I don't do the standard research that I would normally want to do for a show like this because I don't want to parrot the same things that everybody else's Halloween podcast has said because I saw it on Mm -hmm. IMDb trivia and it was just so awesome, right? Okay. Here's the thing. A book came out last year called Taking Shape, which is uh, Mm. Dustin McNeil and Travis Mullins put it out. It's the best book I've ever read about the history of the entire Halloween franchise. It's like super detailed, but perfectly readable. Having said that, I'm going to read to you from this book real quick. Now, this is like page one, okay, from the Taking Shape book. And I'm not going to read it in too dramatic a voice, but I am going to read it in a slightly (laughs) dramatic voice so you know when the quoting stops, all right? You ready for this? Mm Mm-hmm. Do I have your consent, George? Uh, Yeah. Okay. Halloween, 
To trace the holiday's origin, you would need to journey back thousands of years to modern-day Ireland. To trace the origin of the film franchise, you need only go back... Stick with me here, George. To northern Italy in the year 1976. (laughs) The Milan Film Festival had just concluded, and film producer Erwin Yoblins is headed back to the U.S., He would spend the long flight home brainstorming his next project, which was to be a horror picture. Yoblins formulated a rudimentary premise about a slasher that targets babysitters in a quiet suburban community. The plot was assigned a lurid working title, The Babysitter Murders. Though he had few specifics beyond these, Yoblins knew he wanted John Carpenter in the director's chair. Really the most important thing to know is that the Italian origins of these movies are becoming less and less of a surprise. People are starting to catch on. Mm-hmm. That mm. Maybe, maybe those weird old Italian movies influenced slasher movies. Yes. Okay, now we've talked about that at length. So why am I dragging this out? Well, here's why. I don't know. Um, <laughs> there's a director <laughs> from Italy, uh, real big at the time, and actually one of the original Giallo directors uh, pre-Bird, I've used that term before to refer to movies that came out before The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Movies before The Bird with the Crystal Plumage that were giallo were generally sexy, drugs, hippies, and a lot of like angst and pent-up sexual repression coming out. Okay. Right? Like They're based mostly on the movie Repulsion by Roman Polanski and uh, Les Diaboliques, a uh, French film from the 50s that's really good. Okay. And they just did the same plot over and over again, and people kept paying because you might see a booby, right? But it was also it was good, right. good stuff. Dario Argento comes along, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, stabbing mofos like crazy, and all of a sudden Hitchcock became the Order of the Jello, not sexy, angsty time. Uh-huh. So Lindsay switches gears. He goes from the sexy stuff to the slashy stuff. And one of his most successful slashy Jallos is called Seven Bloodstained Orchids. Now, I've prepared a little audio-visual uh, fun for you guys today. I'm going to send you some pictures. And I just want you to tell me what I've just sent you, and I'll fill in the blanks. Tell me what you see in that first picture there. Okay, the first picture is a lady standing next to an open door. One looking, looks like through the open door, and the other looking away. Notice that in the first picture, you've got a, a woman standing next to a full door with the like thin veiled curtain behind it mm-hmm. with her back to camera. And notice in the other picture from Halloween, the almost same shot. Wait. All right. Hold on. Because uh, I was only looking at the first picture. In the second picture, you'll notice both women's shirts are a little bit loose, right? Mm-hmm. We're getting to that like it would be kind of uh, sexual, kind of sexy if they weren't like super mm-hmm. in danger and instead it comes across just as vulnerable. At least I hope it does. Yeah. I'm sure for some people it okay. doesn't. But And then notice in the third picture, I mean, those are like the same picture. You got Annie having uh, yeah. stripped down in the kitchen and this other lady having stripped down on her way into the kitchen. Very confusing. But I mean, you're talking... Yeah. These are... Are these accidents, George? Is this an accident that these pictures look so similar? Uh, if it's a coincidence, it's a really amazing coincidence. Now, so I would say prob- probably not. This next one is, is a bit of a reach, but I want you to see that in these two scenes that are so similar, there's even dead pets. 
And they even had, at one point, they both had pets in the kitchen. Like, at what point do you copy a movie so closely that you're like, man, you know what this scene needs to really make it pop like the original? Let's put a, a pet in the kitchen just to really, like, distract the killer and make the killer kill a, a pet? Like, why are we killing animals except, I guess, to make the the point that this guy is a stone-cold killer? Yeah. See, I looked at it as they were kind of making him a badass. Like, he choked a German shepherd. Like, he didn't mm. just kill it. He didn't stab it. He didn't shoot it. He choked it. I mean, you... Brought it up to his face and choked it. Yeah. You can read That's that scene however badass. you want, Travis. I'm not going <laughs> to... It's a free country. <laughs> uh, so this next shot is pretty conclusive in my opinion, but I wanted to hear your opinions on the fact that the lady from our scene here in the Bloodstained Orchids, she does get killed, but she gets killed through the PJ Soul's telephone wire strangulation, mm. blocked in pretty much the same way. Yeah. Now, here's the craziest thing. You want to talk about detail and production design. What if I told you that even down to Jamie Lee Curtis's shirt in Halloween, they were reaching back to Seven Bloodstained Orchids? Would you believe me? Seems pretty weird, right? At this point, probably yes. So look at this picture I just sent you. Now, accounting for the difference in lighting, right? Because the, the, in my picture, Jamie Lee Curtis's shirt looks darker blue than, you know, in the movie, it's a lighter blue. Yeah. But the, the light is making it darker. But that's the same shirt. Yeah. The the protagonist in Seven Blood St. Orchids wears the same shirt. And would you believe, George and Travis, that that protagonist is actually attacked from behind and receives a flesh wound in the left shoulder? <laughs> Look, it's even the same angle almost. Yeah. I'll put pictures of these somewhere on our socials. So when we release, you guys can look at them if you want to. Uh, I'm not saying that John Carpenter ripped off Umberto Lindsay, but I am going to say that there's some heavy influence in Halloween from the first 15 minutes of Seven Bloodstained Orchids before it gets to be a boring police procedural for the rest of it. Mm. What John Carpenter's effectively doing is taking the visual style of the good part of that one movie and then doing the American thing of like streamlining it, amping it up, taking all the fluff off, and just like, it's like a well-trimmed steak when John Carpenter gets done with it. It's all meat, baby. You should also check out uh, Death Carries a Cane, which is super hard to find. There's like a, you can probably find it on YouTube at this point, but the DVDs out there are terrible. I'm hoping someday we get a good Blu-ray. There is a scene almost identical to the closet assault when when Jamie yep. Lee's stuck in the closet fighting her way out. Hmm. That The mm-hmm. blocking of that scene is almost note for note the same as one in Death Carries a Cane in a greenhouse. Shockingly similar. Well, there's no doubt that people borrow... Like, uh, what is it? Imitation is the strongest form of, form of flattery. Sincerest. Sincerest form of flattery. So I, th- but you know, he did have the good sense to put the killer in a ghost costume with glasses on. Well, <laughs> and that's the thing, <laughs> which made it iconic. The thing that makes Halloween, besides the fact it's a really streamlined, effective slasher, and it changed. <sighs> There's so many things. Halloween, why it's important? There's like seven reasons, right? I mean. It is the turning point for the American market, but it's also for the world market. Like when Halloween went the direction it did, the market followed. And a lot of it has to do with the establishment of that supernatural air, whether it's explained as actually supernatural or just left to interpretation. But that is something as important to just film in general, right? Because it's not just slashers, it's action movies too, right? Right. It is as important as any movie, you know, your psychos, uh, t- 
to the American audience, your your bird that I keep referencing, bird with the crystal plumage, as it was mm-hmm. to the Italian movie, Halloween changes everything. But it wasn't made out of whole cloth, and I think we forget that sometimes. Right. Well, most people don't have the Italian movie references, so they... But they will. They will, right. Like, I, I grew up loving this movie and have never seen an Italian film. So when you send me these screenshots, I'm like, okay, yeah, they are similar. Did Carpenter probably lift some of the visual? Probably. Because in the art field, because I am guilty of this many times, you draw inspiration. Most art is borrowed. Yeah. Or inspired. I, mean, I don't think I don't think Dan's trying to make a case mm-hmm. for plagiarism here. It's just it's just I, inspiration. Yeah. We all love John Carpenter. He makes great movies. He also scores great movies and we started this show off about the most important slasher movie ever. And we started off talking about the theme song. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean that yeah. guy did some stuff with the theme song that they scored in like three days. I believe that. <laughs> okay, now they scored it real quick. I got to ask you to do something for me. Jump over to YouTube, guys. I'm ready. Okay, type in the tough ones. Three words: the tough ones. Lindsay, L E N Z I theme. Now the first result I get it says Italy 1976. Does that sound familiar? Italy 1976. <laughs> Yeah. Franco Michelizzi, The Tough Ones. Do you see that link right there? Mm-hmm. Hit that real quick. I just want you guys to listen to the first 20 seconds of this. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, guys. Yeah. Is everything we know a lie? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. You know what's funny, though? The most iconic music from Halloween, yes, is that that riff. This video was uploaded four years ago and has eight likes. I'm probably two of those (laughs) likes. (laughs) (laughs) That's how obscure this video is. (laughs) But there's so much other music in the movie that actually is better than that that riff. I mean... So even if he was inspired by that riff... He he definitely elaborated on it to the point where I can forgive that as not being. It's still inspirational, and still Carpenter's com- composition. Even if he was inspired by that riff. You okay? Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you can you can live with it, man. Yeah, I'm I'm going to. <laughs> Oh man. We all draw inspiration from somewhere. I mean Carpenter Carpenter did, like I said, kind of bring those notes and make them sharp to increase tension. And he and also I I mentioned not just the song, but also just the sounds. Mm-hmm. All of the sounds. Not just the Yeah. They're really scary man. Everything but And that really inorganic organic like sound. Yeah. It sounds like uh like a monster haunted house yeah but i think all of those um like this halloween theme and a lot of the, you know the scores from the few jallos i've seen have all been pretty similar oh so there's that actually you know what i mean to our, our valued listener i did make george watch some very like tangential jallo so he doesn't know 
you can disregard his comment. He's just not aware. <laughs> he's seen Deep Red. You're just uneducated. He's seen Deep Red, on, uh, and then he's seen What Have They Done to Your Daughters and Suspicious Death of a Minor. Suspicious Death of a Minor, which has a Deep Red-inspired score. So, yeah, he just hasn't. He hasn't heard the Riz, the Riz Orzolani stuff. You have or no the, frame of reference. Yeah, you got you got some more you digging have a to do. Baseless comment. <laughs> I'm so sorry, hey. Yallos. He doesn't go, know to, any go to the principal's office. <laughs> go to the dean's office. <laughs> I mean, from what I've heard <laughs> so far. All right, I'm just gonna stay away from Italian films so I don't ruin any more of my horror movies. Is it the best movie I've ever seen? Maybe Halloween. I love it. I can watch it every day, and it wouldn't get boring. Yeah. And knowing where it came from just makes it more special because it's like, man. Because I, I, I'll tell you, I watched uh, Seven Bloodstains Orchids today to prepare for this. And it, it's it got about 25 good minutes in it. And a lot of it's really boring. There's a guy who looks a lot like Phil Dunphy from Modern Family who's running around trying to solve mm. the case. Huh. Yeah. So that's not a good uh, review for me to go run out and get it's it. It's fine. It's The new release from 88 looks great. What Carpenter did with those pieces is way more than what Lindsay ever was able to do with those pieces. So right. It's just interesting that he's kind of playing with somebody else's deck. Well, from what I can tell, sometimes it's what they couldn't achieve we do. Like I said to you about the what happened to our daughters, the killer was wearing a motorcycle helmet. But in a lot of the American horror slasher movies, they at least uh, brand... I don't want to say they're branding the character, but they they give them an iconic look that's distinct to that character to the point where it's it, it it's it's a lot to me a lot cooler. The Myers mask is a lot cooler than than a a scarf or a a motorcycle helmet. Like they they definitely art directed their way out of it being a complete and total lift. Like they added they added to you're it. You're absolutely right. If you go back and watch a bunch of Italian movies, your killers. If you could eliminate, like, you know, the game Guess Who, the board game, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you could say uh, no more killers who wear trench coats and fedoras and no more killers who wear <laughs> motorcycle helmets and leather jackets, you've eliminated 70% of the killers <laughs> from those movies. They're not actively branding. That is a very right. American thing that you've identified. We want everybody yeah. to have an identity that we can turn into an IP and turn into a video game and a Saturday morning cartoon and he can show up on wrestling and everybody knows, oh my God, that's our guy and he's on wrestling this weekend. Why is he on wrestling? I don't know why he's on wrestling. Maybe it's the sit-up, right. you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very, that's an American thing that they did not ever figure out in Italy. So George. Yeah. You've seen Halloween now. I have. Travis, I think he's ready. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, George, we've brought you almost all the way up to present day in the horror genre because we hate to break it to you, but after Halloween, you basically get 15 more years of Halloweens. Okay. But are you ready to take one step closer to perfection? Yeah. One step deeper into the bowels of human existence? Yes, please. Are you ready to take a enlivening trip He's- to summer camp? Really? What is this episode? Number-wise, what's this? I don't know. Let me see. Oh, it's number 13. This would be the 13th episode. Well, I knew what it was even before you said 13. Uh, Well, yeah, he said summer camp. Because he said camp. Oh, dude, there's so many movies that take place at summer camp, you shouldn't assume. I'll give you... We're we're watching meatballs. We'll watch The Burning. (laughs) Do we need to watch uh, Sleepaway Camp? Sleepaway Camp? We got to do Sleepaway Camp. We'll do that as a bonus episode. I love that movie. He said bonus. Bonus. George, have you ever seen 
a nightmare or not? No. Uh, <laughs> Friday the 13th. I've never seen either of those movies. No? No, I haven't okay. seen Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. The original, the first, the OG. I haven't seen any of them. <sighs> well, you're going to see them all at some point. Mm-hmm. But you're going to see the first one next week for our 13th episode. Sounds good. Sweet. I'm excited. I'm pumped. This came out, what, 80? 1980. Shot in the fall 80. of 79. So it was pretty close. Close enough to not borrow from each other. Okay. So. Yeah, we'll see about that. <laughs> and I'm sure I won't have a 15-minute diatribe at the end about how the Italians did it first. But don't worry, I'm already <laughs> prepping my screenshots. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Looking forward to hey, it. Hey, George. Yeah. Are you getting your money's worth at remedial film class? I I think so. He's liked half of them, so that's... I don't have to like it. <laughs> no, you don't. You, you're right. But you I don't. do have to understand... Why others it, it, do. The importance of it. Right. You know what's crazy about Halloween, George? What's that? You could watch it right now, and it'd still feel like it was worth it, even though you just watched it a couple hours ago. It's an easy read. It's definitely yeah. an easy read. Minus the uh, continuity issues, which bothered the hell out of you. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was like, he was like rewinding stuff. He's like, all right, this is what happened here. Why is this happening here? These people, what? The sun is up. Now it's down. The, he's This is walking distance, but they're driving. Why are they driving? <laughs> no, I, the only thing that I went back to look at was Loomis. I was like, where was Loomis when he found the station wagon? And the camera goes, from the Myers house to his face to his face seeing mm-hmm. the station wagon. And I was like, oh, there he's he's right there. Right. Why did we drive 40 minutes? Right. <laughs> well, the same thing with Loomis the finding the truck. He's on the payphone and he's like mm-hmm. 73 miles from Haddonfield. And he's like, he's coming home, blah, blah, blah. If they would have just had him make that phone call after finding the truck, it would have made more sense. Like to me, it's like who's driving that far to find a payphone? He finds a payphone, just happens to be next to where the truck was. Like it just seems odd. Now, see, I read it as he saw the tow truck, recognized it as being a suspicious situation, and that's why he picked that spot to make the phone call. Yeah, that, but that didn't play through for me, and I've seen it a hundred times. I always looked at it as he finds that truck after he hangs that phone up. And George. The thing about the riding in the car for four hours thing, I think you you might want to remember that even though these are latchkey kids, they don't feel comfortable smoking pot in their house. So that that car is right. their little independent safe haven. Like it's not about the distance; it's about being isolated, driving around, driving around. Getting yeah, high. that's the only right. that's the only logical explanation. Which which I did think of. I did think of that, but you know, it goes from. You know, in front of the hardware store where it's like broad daylight to kind of sun is setting to, okay, now it's nighttime. Right. And that had to be like, that's at least an hour. And they were smoking the whole time. I like that you Hmm. watch movies like George, even if we try to teach you not to. (laughs) It's it's fine. It, it, it's it's fine. It's the remedial (laughs) film class needs to give way to like the re-education film class. I don't. I don't think I get paid enough to re-educate you, though, man. I don't know how you could. I think this is just how I am. Is this satire? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good question. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Remedial Film Class Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
Remember to hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at, at RemedialFilmPod. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash RemedialFilmPod. And if you want to email me your strangest and best explained, I mean, really, I don't understand. Best explained, Michael Myers is my sexy daddy <laughs> fantasies. You can do that to RemedialFilmPod at gmail.com. Just remember, attention, George, on those. All right. <laughs> Send pics. We'll see you here <laughs> next week. Or don't. Or don't. <laughs> For Friday the 13th? Totally. Yes. So, I was 14, and I was going to be Michael Myers for Halloween. Naturally. Naturally. And I had the mask. I had my Don Post mask, brand new, bought from Kappa's. Paid 70 bucks for it. I was so excited. I go out. Hmm. And I'm like, I don't have a knife. I can't be Michael Myers without a knife. So I go in my kitchen and I find <laughs> a butcher knife. Oh, no. Continue. From the drawer. Yeah. So a big old knife. A, we're talking like a probably a 12 inch butcher <laughs> knife, right? Oh, no. This is before Spirit Halloween. This is before any place you can buy a plastic knife. This is knife. obviously so this pre-9-11. Is a, oh, God. It was 1987, I think? Ish? Shrugs. I don't know. When, when did Halloween 4 come out? So, yeah, it was around there. And so I'm tr- walking around. I'm old enough to where I'm not really going house to house. We're just kind of walking around spooking people. And Hold on, hold on. Hold on. S- You're menacing people with a real knife? No. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. So we're walking and we're just kind of hanging out and saying hi to people. And then I see this kid that I didn't get along with. So I walk up to him. Oh no! And and he, and I just stare at him. He doesn't know who he doesn't know who I am. And I just stand there and I stare at him until he walks away. And then as he walks away, he looks back. I start walking towards him. And I literally Myers chase him for a block and a half, just slow walking. And he, <laughs> it was like a movie. He runs to the friendlies and he runs into friendlies. So I walk up to the glass door at friendlies and I stand there with the butcher knife. <laughs> <laughs> oh my and I just show him the knife for a good five minutes and I don't do or say anything. He just, now, what is friendlies? Is that a grocery store or a gas station? It's a, Ice cream, ice cream place. It's a restaurant. It's like a restaurant ice cream. Fast food with ice cream. Okay. So I'm standing at this door, and, and I see him talking to the manager, and I just stood there, and I'm looking. And then all of a sudden, I hear, like, police sirens. Menacingly. Like, behind me. <laughs> and I turn, I turn around, and there's a cop car there with the lights on. So <laughs> I come down the steps. In Myers style, I'm walking down the steps real slow, and then it got real fast. Like they came up to me, they they ripped the mask off, they threw me to the ground, they took the knife, and I'm like, holy shit! Like I'm like, I was just having fun. So they throw me in the back back of the police car. I'm sitting back there for like the whole time they're talking to the manager and the kid. Fifteen minutes easily. The cop gets in the car and he's he just sits there. And he's like writing and writing and writing and writing. I'm thinking, I'm so screwed. I'm getting arrested for this. And my brother's about to go into the academy. Like, it was just a terrible, terrible night. So then the cop makes me wait for another 15 minutes. 
And then he's like, where do you live? And I'm like, all right, he's going to take me home. I'm not getting arrested. Did he ask you what the heck you were doing? No. No one ever asked me what I was doing. (laughs) So he takes me home. Amazing. So you literally could have been like, oh, yeah, I hate this guy, and I'm going to fucking kill him as soon as he walks out of Friendly's. But the cops didn't ask, so you didn't have to tell him? That's, wow. No, I don't remember him asking me. I might have voluntarily said I was just, Uh, like, I don't remember what I said. I just remember sitting there for a long time. I think I might have told him right when they got there what I was doing, and that's why they didn't question me. So they take me home, and then they pull up in front of my house, and I notice, like, like seven or eight people in my kitchen. And I'm like, they're going to return me home, and there's, like, we have company. (laughs) That's so good. <laughs> and I'm not a bad kid, so I'm sitting here like the cops are bringing me home. Then I wasn't scared because I was like, oh, cool, I'm not getting arrested. Then I see my dad is home. My dad is never home. My dad is home. I mean, it so explains that- why you're walking around New Jersey with a butcher knife if your dad's not around. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's always he's always working. So once I saw my dad was home, then I'm like, <laughs> I said to the cop, I'm like, um, do you have to bring me home? <laughs> Because I was just scared what his reaction. So his reaction was very tame. But the cops, like, they open the door and the cop says, does this belong to you? <laughs> like, I'm like some kind of terrible kid that <laughs> well, you know, I mean, gets you brought home. Well, I mean, you threaten a kid with a knife earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I was just playing a part. Yeah. Acting. So, acting. Thank you. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I go in the house and then I go up to my room for a good half hour. Just thinking I'm going to get my ass beat. But what was your dad's reply? My dad goes, unfortunately. That's what he says to the cop. When the cop says, does this belong to you? He's like, unfortunately. Like I, I- love the, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, not he. Does he belong to you? Does this Does belong this to- <laughs> belong to you? And your dad says, unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> that has never, I've never been brought home by the cops. Never. Except for that night. The night I came home. (laughs) (laughs) And scene. And scene. So, yeah, I've never taken a knife out for Halloween ever again. Oh, my God. Good stuff. And we did not find a dead body that night. (laughs) But you did your Mm. best to make one. It just didn't work out. Hey, I didn't swing it at anybody. I didn't pull it on him when when he was right in front of me. I waited till he went inside. Yeah, he was just, you know, he was was just stalking him. I was just stalking him, you know. Menacingly, yeah, it was terrible. Cool. I think of it now, and if anybody did that, my kids, I'd probably bring a lawsuit. But at the time, I wasn't thinking. Mm-hmm.